on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. On a long enough timeline, we all embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 206 of Embrace the Void, where we won't stop thinking about tomorrow. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are staring into the voidiest void there is, the future. So, let's calculate some utils. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Tyler John, head of research at Longview Philanthropy. Tyler, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void, and hi, Aaron. I wanted to congratulate you on your 200th episode and finishing your first year of your PhD. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that. Tyler and I are IRL friends and colleagues. We have um, worked together. We first met in a Larry Temkin grad class on the ethics of populations and boxes, which will come up probably some in this episode, actually. And I did some TA work for him in a non-western and it's primarily chinese right chinese That's philosophy right. Mm-hmm. class Preaching. yeah and yeah now we get to hang out and talk about some effective altruism so i'm stoked about that so Me tyler too. to get us started why don't you do you want to let folks know a little bit about your philosophical political compass and like what brings you into the effective altruism world okay cool philosophical and political compass great so uh philosophically Morally, I'm a classical utilitarian. That means mm-hmm. I'm a totalist, hedonistic, act utilitarian. I think the only thing that matters about our actions is whether they maximize the balance of happiness over suffering. I think it's a it's beautiful, and mm-hmm. um, we should see more of it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm also I also lean verificationist nowadays, which means I'm a raging empiricist. I think there's only empirical truths. Anything else is sophistry and illusion. Mm-hmm. I hear verificationism is hot right now. Yeah, it's making a real comeback. Yeah. It's exciting. Uh-huh. And then, yeah, as far as, like, politics, I guess I'm your standard, like, uh, center-left lefty who likes markets and, and progress and things like this. And mm-hmm. so pretty pretty uninteresting in that respect. Okay. So, so, like, some people would accuse you of being a liberal or a neoliberal or a Marxist, depending on who you were talking to, basically? That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, okay. I'm familiar with your place on that political compass as I also live there. <laughs> um, so, great. So what then brings you, how, do, how does all of that coalesce, and I'm, we'll come back around to the classical utilitarianism in a second, how does all that coalesce into effective altruism for you? 
Yeah, sure. So actually, I came to effective altruism um, before I adopted these philosophical beliefs. This was when I was an undergrad. I was a conservative evangelical Christian at a Baptist college. Mm. Yeah. And so in my second year there, like any budding EA, I came across the work of uh, Peter Singer Mm -hmm. and specifically read, yeah, Famine, Affluence, and Morality, heard about the Shallow Pond Thought Experiment, your you know, walking on your way to work, you come across a toddler drowning in a pond. You could hop in and save this child. But if you do, you'll ruin your nice $200 pair of shoes. Whatever will you do? Well, of course, you ought to jump Mm -hmm. in and save the child. Uh, Thought that like some of the conclusions and implications of this argument were pretty uh, obvious. But reading about it in college sort of like helped crystallize my identity as thinking of myself as someone who wanted to do the most good that I could. And in fact, Mm -hmm. a a friend who was in the class, this ethics class and me just sort of, sort of started like an arms race, like egging each other on to be more and more like of a do gutter. Like we would go out to the, like a utility pump competition, basically. Exactly. We kept pumping Uh more and more utility. I feel like this ends in some really severe problems, right? Does one of you end it, up like selling your kidney on a black market or something like that? So actually, the way it ended up was like it got too hard for him and he went off to live in the jungle and teach rock climbing. And I went off to do long termism. So okay. I think like there was. Uh, What's the moral? There was, there was a bit story? of a split at some point. <laughs> I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it did get it did get dangerous. We start asking, like, you know, can you really buy this meal? Wouldn't the money go further to other places? You know, mm-hmm. near near starvation for both of us, it was bad. Uh, not that bad. So you like basically lived out the demandingness objection as far as you could to like a breaking point kind of activity. Exactly, and I now think that maybe living out the demandingness objection to a breaking point isn't actually the best way to do the most good you can. <laughs> Surprise! You were just brash young utilitarians, just out there, not even, not even, so naive. yeah, it's so simple. That's so funny. Do you want to help folks? Um, a little background here. What is sure. the difference between effective altruism and utilitarianism, or is effective altruism just like a flavor of utilitarianism that really likes math? Yeah, good question, and a, a common question, frankly. Uh, mm-hmm. There are similarities, so it makes sense that people would ask about this. So. I see effective altruism as a project, it's, uh, or, or even a movement. It's a project that I think over time has become increasingly heterogeneous. It's a lot of different projects subsumed under one project. Mm-hmm. So I'll say what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, broadly, I think the project is something like trying to do more good rather than less good and using evidence, the best evidence available to do more good. Mm-hmm. And maybe the most accurate definition of effective altruism is going to be something sociological. It's a movement that started in like in Oxford around 2009 and around these principles. But I think the core idea, the idea that most people in the movement are animated by, though not all of them is that you want to do as much good as you possibly can with your time, with your money, with your career, with your life and use evidence and reason to do so in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. And so this then has, a relationship to utilitarianism, at least in practice. So utilitarianism as a moral theory says it does require us to do as much good as we possibly can with our time, our money, our resources. And it's a welfarist theory. It says that the kind the kind of good we should be promoting 
is mm-hmm. well-being, mm-hmm. something like happiness or flourishing. And in fact, many effective altruists are concerned predominantly with increasing total welfare as much as possible. Now, so there are similarities between this project and the moral theory of utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. But that said, uh, I think only according to the last survey of the effective altruism community, only 66% of effective altruists identify as consequentialists or lean consequentialist. That's surprising. Uh, yeah, it surprised me too, actually. But effective altruism is consistent with side constraints on actions, like don't lie, don't kill. It's consistent with pluralism, like the valuing equality and beauty. So mm-hmm. uh, even though people who are in the movement and who will be most comfortable in the movement are people who really care about welfare and promoting impartial welfare, it is the case that anyone who felt comfortable with that, no matter what your values, could be pretty excited about being a part of this community. Okay, so... Yeah, I'm curious about how I mean I think I think you could make sense of how like a view like the ontology that talks about the intrinsic value of individuals could get to a similar kind of place. Now, I want to go back a little bit for a second um and then we'll get mm-hmm. into some some potential concerns about the EA thing. So you mentioned initially that you're a classical utilitarian and you mm-hmm. prioritize the consequences um you know and the classic concern that people will raise about that is what does that mean about your views about the means to achieving those kinds of consequences like are mm-hmm. you do you really think for example that like human beings are can be treated as a means to an end, not as an end in themselves, if doing so will Mm -hmm. genuinely produce a substantial amount of greater utility. Um, Or like, so I guess we could say, um, are human beings a means to an end where the end is their own well-being, but you're allowed to use them as a means to achieve that, like, objectively good end in that way? Yeah, so as a classical utilitarian, and and frankly, as a consequentialist, at least on some ways of construing this set of values, um, I do think that there are no intrinsic, non-instrumental rights that individuals have. There's no intrinsic reason not to kill, not to lie, not to steal. And the reasons we have not to kill, not to lie, not to steal, um, rather than being part of the moral fundamentalia, are actually entailed by practical considerations arising from our... Uh, arising from obligations to promote total value. And so turns out that killing people is usually like quite a bad way to mm-hmm. make the world a really good place. And so <laughs> probably that's not something we should be doing. Um, but uh, it is the case that for me, and then I guess something like, you know, two thirds of effective altruists would lean towards this kind of position. Mm-hmm. There's no, uh, in among the moral fundamentalia, there's no obligations to respect uh, rights or something like this. Where do you think the obligation to maximize utility comes from? I'm curious. Like if, we, if we can delve into meta-ethics for just a second. Sure. So I, as I said, I'm a verificationist, which mm. means that I don't think that there's moral facts that are somehow uh, somehow transcend the empirical world. I don't think that somewhere written in Plato's heaven in the ether it says thou shalt maximize utility or something like this mm-hmm. um i think that ethics values boils down to what we value what we care about and so when i say that i'm utilitarian what i'm saying is i i want to see a world where everyone's flourishing as much as possible and suffering as little as possible and i want everyone else to take the means to bring about this kind of world that's 
the kind of thing that I most value and want to see happen. Mm-hmm. A sta- so it's a statement of your preference about the way you want the world to end up rather than you believing that you have correctly cognized the way the world should be and are trying to bring it about. That sounds right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I think, you know, you and I obviously uh, uh, attend different churches, as I'm sure we've discussed before <laughs> on this particular right. topic, but that's not our job here. We're not going to, I'm not going to take that bait or anything like that. We're going to, uh, <laughs> like, you know, some of our folks are interested about those differences, but I think, you know, you and I can still agree on a variety of other things at normative and applied levels, even if we disagree about meta ethics, that's the fun of this Absolutely. stuff. Um, so speaking of applied levels, before we get into criticisms of effective altruism, do you want to help folks out with like, what are the nuts and bolts? like projects that like effective altruists are actively mm-hmm. pushing right now. I think I mean the classic example I know of is like malaria nets, right? Yeah. When in doubt, buy some malaria yeah. nets. Um, but like, <laughs> can't go wrong. <laughs> can't go wrong with malaria nets, right? Uh, but I'm curious, like, do, are there other things that you feel like you want to include in that sort of uh, front page picture of the goals of effective altruism? Oh, yes. I think the front page picture of effective altruism as being about distributing malaria nets is grossly misleading, though I do think this is a part of what the community is is doing, in particular, specific sub-communities in the community are doing. Mm -hmm. So I I will say, first, I think the reason why this, like, meme, um, well, I don't know the reason this meme is so persistent, but I think the effective, in the early days of the effective altruism community, most of what people who self-identified as effective altruists were focused on were basically randomista development doing doing development work that was supported by randomized controlled triangle trials (laughs) Uh where um you could be sure that you were doing quite a bit of good with your actions by distributing malaria nets um distributing uh, deworming pills to prevent schistosomiasis, things like this. And this got a lot of media. And then I think just the media attention from these issues has just kind of stuck around. Mm-hmm. But, and it is still the case that a, a bunch of people in the effective altruism community, maybe a quarter, think that we should be prioritizing global health and development as the most important uh, problem. And the number one way that we who are living today can do the most good we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Now, there's two other kind of sub-communities in the effective altruism community, although this too oversimplifies things. Other people think we should focus on other issues. Mm-hmm. The second community is people who are focused on animal welfare. And people who are focused on animal welfare are particularly concerned about factory farming, mm-hmm. since it's a source of untold suffering for something like one to three trillion animals who are in factory farms at any given second. And mm-hmm. so a lot of effective altruists think that what we should be focusing on, maybe this is another third or something like this, is to fight uh, factory farming as aggressively as possible. Mm-hmm. And then the final group, which I was just looking at an EA survey, and it looked like in 2020, this might be around half the community, think that we should be focusing on trying to make the very long-term future of the world as good as possible. So shaping the trajectory of civilization and ensuring that the world thousands or millions of years from now is as good as it could possibly be. Okay, so those are our long-term-ism folks who we will we will definitely get That's to, right. right? I'm going to talk about them in particular, but I want to like talk about some generic concerns about effective altruism that maybe apply to all three categories first, and then we can mm-hmm. dive into some specific concerns. But I think that's a really useful map in terms of like you have global health and improvement of quality of life for individuals sort of right here, right now in the like primarily 
human animal context versus the non-human animal context those are sort of two separate projects Mm -hmm. and then there's the like the long-term persons project um so talking about ea in general and this i think you know you mentioned there that like part of the initial traction was they were working on projects that again to play to your verificationist tendencies you know like had highly (laughs) verifiable kinds of results and so right could could like show up well in testing or something right like that could could have this empirical basis behind them that where you could say you know look these other this other project is going to squander your resources and produce no good we can tell you for sure that Mm -hmm. this is going to give you x amount of utils per dollar put into this project (laughs) right which is like a valuable improvement over you know maybe a corrupt system where like resources are not well tracked and distributed right um but then i think the first concern that i think some people will raise is the unintended side effect of using those kind of metrics for assessing your outcomes is you tend to emphasize um, projects that have like an intervention that is effective in an easily provable kind of way, which ends up privileging certain certain kinds of quantifiable projects over more like hard to quantify ones. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure, you know, EA has, has spent some time on this problem. So like, how do you feel like they have finesse their approach to deal with that sort of concern yeah so i think this is for the reasons you said a good concern to have that the effective altruism community by trying to use evidence and reason and in particular looking at some of the kinds of things the effective altruism community does like randomista development um maybe biased towards easily quantifiable metrics and I think this is something that we're all just biased towards. This is just the measure, you know, the measurability bias affects mm-hmm. us all. That's um, why it works in the media so well that way, right? That's why it catches on in that kind of way. Because we're all we're all hardwired to want to see that, oh, right? So, right. I, I mean, I, I think that's my feeling about why why that meme about the malaria nets really does hook people so well is that like mm-hmm. we we do like that kind of um, quantifiable, predictable result in that kind of way. Yeah, save a life for $3,500 sounds pretty nice, especially when it's a robust estimate. Right, and with good reason. Like, like it is a good thing. Right, right? it's right? great. <laughs> this is, that's, why, that's why I want to emphasize, I think, the concern right. here is a kind of unintended reshaping of the landscape um, because of that reasonable goal there. Yeah, so I think that whether this critique lands is just sensitive to what period of effective altruism we're talking about and what subgroup of effective altruism we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there's just a lot of disagreement. Here's part of the heterogeneity I was talking about before within the effective altruism community about how much we should be quantifying things, what kinds of metrics we should use and what kinds of interventions we should be pursuing. Mm-hmm. So there is still a sizable pr- proportion of the community that's focused on what's been, um, I guess, um, derogatorily called randomista development where you're doing randomized controlled trial trials to try to find things that uh interventions that have mm-hmm. um reliably name. good results <laughs> yeah <laughs> right um but this but this kind of way of doing effective altruism has been uh, quite like significantly criticized by uh what's now the most popular post on the effective altruism forum which is where all the effective altruists hang out and chat about do-gooding you all really do have one place where you all go and hang out and like do the secret handshake 
That's great. I can neither confirm nor deny. Fair enough. Fair enough. Right. I wouldn't want you to undercut your effectiveness. <laughs> so apparently um, what these critics have said is that the primary way historically that uh, global health and development has improved is through economic growth mm-hmm. um, and inclusive economic growth, which includes things like you know, a wide variety of uh, health and well-being metrics and not just GDP. But then if that's true, probably what we should be doing is aiming at trying to improve economic growth if we want to help people um, in countries not developed industrialized economies mm-hmm. rather than uh, distributing malaria nets. In the animal welfare community, you have a similar kind of divide. Um, I call it a divide. I don't know how like um, furiously these people are fighting or anything. It's just disagreement. And I sure. think one good thing about the EA community is there's this healthy, robust disagreement. So in the community, in this community, you've got some, um, you know, you've had this kind of history and this tendency to prioritize, uh, you know, use use guesstimate to come up here with your quantifiable uh, metrics for how many animal lives you save per dollar. And I think this maybe, though I'm not an expert on the way that these are calculated, has tended to promote things like corporate cage-free campaigns and mm-hmm. uh, advertise, advertising where you can just like see metrics very easily, easily and quantify them very mm-hmm. uh, quickly, as opposed to things like uh, taking kind of moonshot opportunities to abolish animal agriculture and factory farming and help many, many animals for many, many years to come, mm-hmm. which is another thing mm-hmm. that other people in the effective altruism community think we, we should in fact be doing. Yeah, that's and you can see, I think, yeah. Well, it's interesting because another one of the objections that I was going to bring up was the concern that effective altruism kind of tends towards incrementalist solutions because they are more easily quantifiable versus more radical changes to systemic problems that may cause substantial upheaval and therefore be harder to right. quantify in that way. So you would say yeah, there's active debate another, about that, right? Yeah, there is active debate about that. And I think... The like the most stark version of this debate that you see is going to be between the people who are long termists, which is something we'll talk about at greater length, who think mm-hmm. that everything we should be doing is moonshot opportunities to affect the entire trajectory of civilization forever, mm-hmm. and people who are doing random use of development. Like these are quite radically opposed philosophies within right. effective altruism, and I think show the huge range of things from incrementalism to radical reform and measurable to. Uh, harder to quantify metrics, but metrics that I think we should try to quantify as best as possible so mm-hmm. that we can be clear about our uncertainty, be honest about our assumptions, and uh, get clear about our paths to impact. Do you feel like yourself personally, are you like a pluralist about this sort of thing where you feel like you are sympathetic to all these different camps and want to try to find ways to incorporate all of these concerns? Or do you feel like you lean more strongly in one direction or the other? So we we may revisit this again when we talk about long-termism. I think I'm a bit more pluralist in the context of the priorities within the subgroup of the long-termism community. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you may or may not know that I um, spent a few years doing a lot of animal rights work and um, animal, animal welfare advocacy. Mm-hmm. And I indeed still sit on the board of a nonprofit organization in Mexico that's doing grassroots animal advocacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, for reasons that we'll get into in the future, I, I think there's some case that 
some, that some of this kind of work could be of long-term significance. And so we shouldn't think of animal advocacy and long-termism as being entirely opposed in separate camps. And so in this way, I maybe am like a little bit more of a pluralist picking from a couple different buckets, but I do tend like mm-hmm. to be quite strongly in the long-termist camp and think that we should be focusing on moonshots to affect the long-term trajectory of civilization. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you just said that. Cause I was also curious Do you, how much do you feel like there is, and, and being like really honest, especially as somebody who's working in like these non-profity kind of worlds, how much is it a bit of a kind of zero sum conflict where like if long-termism is doing really well, then like global projects really do genuinely suffer. And like Mm. there, you know, as much as we want to talk about philosophical pluralism, we have to be honest about the fact that like some things like there's Mm -hmm. a, there's a scarcity of resources at the present and some things are going to win out over others. Yeah. So I think within the effective altruism community, it's not actually that zero sum Mm -hmm. because I think in the effective altruism community right now, the bottleneck just isn't money Mm -hmm. and it isn't even really people. It's like project ideas, stuff that can be funded in things that people can do. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a really great project idea in any of these areas, you'll probably be able to find funding for it and you might be able to find people who will come along and do it with you. And so I think in the effective altruism community, we can afford quite like a logic of abundance, thinking of mm-hmm. the um, thinking of the community as having kind of a trove of riches that we can all share in. But at the end of the day, this is a question of prioritization. This is a question of how can we do the most good possible mm-hmm. with our time and our resources. And so we should own up to the fact that at bottom, there just are going to be... Um, there just are going to be... Like better and worse models. Better and worse models. And there just is going to be some kind of zero sum competition at the end of the day where we just will have to prioritize and allocate more resources to some areas than to others. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned in there economic growth. And this is another area where I think we can, and this will shade us into the long-termism stuff. Um, One of the concerns I think that some people have raised with the effective altruism is that there is, especially the long-term effective altruism, is that there is a decrease in emphasis on concern around climate change. Do you feel like Mm. the the economic growth model that you just mentioned, right, we should be focused on economic growth rather than malaria, or like, you know, more so than malaria nets, has an unfortunate consequence that economic growth means you know, accelerating uh, climate change when we are sort of desperately needing to find alternative uh, approaches that are more, that are not growth-based, right? Low, lower growth-based models in that sense. Good question. So I will first say that effective altruists are definitely not uncritical about economic growth. You see this in our concerns about various kinds of um, extinction risks or existential catastrophes. Mm-hmm. A lot of effective altruists are very concerned about um, climate change, which I'll come back to in a moment, um, but also about things like uh, runaway artificial intelligence or um, bioterrorism from advanced biotechnologies um, and other risks to civilization that come from a growing economy and technological progress. And so a lot of effective altruists are quite concerned about um, economic growth. And in fact, there's, I think there's like here too, like a robust and healthy disagreement about whether effective altruism, or sorry, about whether economic growth mm-hmm. is good because it um, makes people better off and like it provides a kind of differential technology development that allows us to develop technologies that maybe can help us deal with some of these problems mm-hmm. that we're facing, like mm-hmm. runaway climate change mm-hmm. um, and grow, you know, 
countries without industrialized economies um, so that lives can just be much better Mm -hmm. or whether it's bad because um, it can lead to some of these kinds of catastrophes. And so I think this is just something where the effective altruism community doesn't speak with one voice. Mm -hmm. But I will say on climate change in particular, I think the main reason why, um, as you say, the effective altruism community has underemphasized climate change as opposed to other potential catastrophes like some things, again, that uh, the community is concerned about include um, nuclear war and nuclear winter, um, advanced biotechnologies that could cause global pandemics, mm-hmm. um, unfamiliar idea, uh, artificial general intelligence. I think the reasons why these things have become more of a focus for the effective altruism community is because there already is significant attention around climate change. And we know that it's going to cost trillions of dollars to mitigate, to take the carbon out of the atmosphere that's causing climate change. So if we want to prioritize things that are less crowded, that are more tractable, where we can more easily make a large difference, then we'll prioritize things that have less attention, like Mm -hmm. nuclear war and biotechnology. I see. So it's a matter of trying to bring attention to things that are uh, significant and, and and are more disproportionately um under sort of underfunded or under concerned exactly right relative to right. which is not to say that we're doing well on climate change and i'm curious to see we'll get, no. we'll get your thoughts about that more in a second but let's let's bring the long-termism yeah. uh long-termism back into this now so this is sort of a subfield as you say of uh effective altruism it, it seemed like my sense from the outside was that there was at least a period I don't know how long the period was where this was the dominant view and mm. there has since been a little bit more kind of spreading, as you say, heterodoxy. Um, do you want to sort of just give a sort of basic account of what it is? And, and as you said, you, you named a couple of examples there, but anything else that's like big on the radar for this part of EA? Yeah. So um, I think it's still the case that long-termism is the, at the epicenter of the effective altruism community mm-hmm. probably again about half of effective altruists think this should be the priority and among the ea intelligentsia i think it's like quite a bit higher like most okay. of like the ea movement leaders are especially concerned about long-termism but um i think the kind of diversification heterogeneization cool cool word mm-hmm. that um <laughs> you you mentioned isn't away from long-termism but it is a differentiation within long-termism mm-hmm. so initially in like 2003 you know because long-termism at least like concern with futures started before the effect of altruism community sure. so initially in like you know maybe the period of from 2003 to 2013 people who were concerned about the long-term future were mostly concerned about um extinction risks in particular mm-hmm. and i think this does still this is still a dominant concern, but now I think long-termism has turned into a more um, hetero- a more heterogeneous community. And so you see concern not just with extinction risks, with risks that civilization could end. And um, instead of having mm-hmm. quintillions of people across the stars doing really cool transhuman stuff forever, we have like, you know, a short life on earth for like, you know, a few a 500 million years of sentient life and then that's all kind of like shitty and then it goes away mm-hmm. um so and so now you don't have just have people thinking about extinction risk but you also have people thinking about two other areas uh within long-termism one of which is called 
trajectory change, mm-hmm. which involves making a persistent improvement to the quality of the world for a very long period of time. So just making things better, you know, if we're still around. Mm-hmm. And then global priorities research, which is research into how to make the long-term future as good as possible, or more broadly, research on what our biggest priorities should be. Okay, great. So let's, I want to talk about those three. And, and again, I want to sort of, I'm curious to hear your thoughts again on this sort of zero-sum question or synergistic question. Do you feel like mm. those three things, like we need to be concerned about where we're focusing on our energy, or do you feel like there's more, there's mostly a lot of overlap in terms of trajectory is improved by selecting the right research and selecting the right research is determined by prioritizing the right existential risks kind of stuff? Yeah, so a few things to say on that. One is, I think we really don't know a lot about the long-term future. And we do need, like, it is just this huge intellectual project that we just need to be developing a lot more to figure out what our biggest priority should be. The second is, I think depending on what kind of judgment calls you make about the long-term future, it could make quite a big difference to what you focus on. Mm -hmm. Like, some people just aren't concerned about extinction at all because they don't think that... um, it's bad if the if the universe isn't um, like they don't think it's bad if the if the light in the universe goes out and there's just nothing for uh-huh. you know, quintillions of years and so they would be focused primarily on trajectory change and research. But um, I will I will say again I think in this case we can have a logic of abundance because there's just enough resources to go around and few enough people who are thinking about these issues, mm-hmm. um, especially after COVID. I think there's been a particular increase in pandemics and even other kinds of existential catastrophes as a result. Uh, so for this reason, I think that there doesn't need to be that much like fighting about marginal allocation of resources. Okay. So let's, let's dive in on existential risk a bit first, since we're all living through that. Um, do we, so there's, first of all, there's a bit of a qualifying, like, I don't know if it's a splitting hairs thing or a debate that comes up sometimes about what actually qualifies as an existential risk, right? Are we defining this in terms of like the death of the whole human species? Because then it's like, you know, some people will say, for example, climate change is not an existential risk. It's going to cause a bunch of suffering, but like, it's not like short of, I think a full collapse of the ecosystem or something like the human species is going to migrate and adapt. So Mm -hmm. that's different from like giant meteor in that kind of sense. So how do you characterize existential risk and sort of what are you think of as the, like the top, maybe top three kinds of existential risks that we're facing right now? Great question. So whether or not I already did in this episode, I actually try not to use the term existential risk mm-hmm. uh, because it is just a chimera and it's very nebulous. So it does have, I think, a technical definition, which are risks that threaten the long-term potential of Earth-originating civilization. So this is like a huge array of things. It's extinction. It's... um. It's like, you know, suppose we had a civilizational collapse and became hunter-gatherers forever and had permanent stagnation mm-hmm. or just other kinds of permanent stagnation because we, it turns out settling space is too hard. There's lots of different things that would then be existential risks. Right. But I, so I tend to then prefer the word extinction risk and refer to things that don't cause extinction as um, global catastrophes, typically. Mm-hmm. So I think on climate change uh climate change 
is like a very small extinction risk because you do have tail scenarios that are possible where there are long feedback loops from climate change that lead to things like like just results that are so catastrophic that we at least would all need to move to Antarctica um if not yeah um i, I guess worse. it seems like the more the concern there rather than like i mean i do think you're going to you could see potentially like cascading collapses that produce a lot of suffering but it seems like the existential or or the like extinction part comes in when societies adapting to that have increased tension increased conflict and there's the increased yeah, risk of something like a nuclear exchange because of you know collapsing results of drought in parts of the world or something like that right so these different kinds of global catastrophes can egg each other on um so right there's been a predicted i think 50 percent increase in conflict due at four degree warming i think is is the case mm -hmm. and a 50 percent increase in conflict means higher chances of nuclear wars and other kinds of catastrophes like this uh there's also a concern that you know maybe we'll just use up all of our fossil fuels in a kind of in a kind of race and then society will stagnate after this because we'll have no better ways to improve our economy. And then we'll have 10,000 years of climate change mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. that we're not able to adapt to. Uh, so I think there are lots of different scenarios where um, things other than just simple runaway effects could cause very significant risks for civilization. Uh, but it is the case that climate change on its, on its own um, absent some of these other kinds of considerations, does not look like a very significant uh, um, extinction risk. Okay. So which of the ones do you think of as the, like, very significant? Is it giant rock? Is it... Um, <laughs> I mean, like, do you do you count, like, just space being too fuck-off hard for us to actually live in as being, like, one of the problems here? So, yeah, um... Yeah, so a few different questions there. Giant rock. Um, apparently, there's only about a 1 in 20 million chance of us being obliterated by a giant rock per century. Mm -hmm. So it's a risk, um, but not like something that should devote all of our civilization's attention kind of risk. Like the asteroid monitoring that we're doing now is like a, a pretty good step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But then there are other risks that are much more significant, particularly anthropogenic risks. Um, maybe the most significant being... Um, risk from advances in biotechnology and in particular um, from biological weapons. Mm. So the current coronavirus pandemic has, you know, made like put uh, mm -hmm. the world's economy like at a screeching halt and like killed millions of people. But and and that's not like, even a bioweapon. Let's let's make clear, right? That's right. Yeah, not a case of someone, oh, well, like, certainly not a bioweapon. And, and releasing a bioweapon, as some people tend to believe, right? Um, but um, I mean, we don't know now if it's a lab leak or if it's you know zoonotic. And and lab leaks, I think, are a significant concern for uh, like global catastrophic biological events. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly not a bioweapon. Right. <laughs> that much we can be clear right. on. And I think it's, I think the evidence for it being a lab leak is still not there. So I think it's still reasonable to presume that it's a zoonotic leak, but or a zoonotic transmission. But I do think, like the point is, um, the rapid spread of a contagion is is like, I, I guess you know this gets into a little bit of like, 
I'm curious how we can really make any decisions about where to focus. And part of what stops me in my tracks is like when you look at the way we're dealing with COVID right now, the way we're dealing with climate change right now, like aren't you just like incredibly fatalistic about a human's abilities to deal with large scale and long term collective action problems? Like how do you how do you deal with oh, that? Like how do you looking co- at the world? Yeah, like how do you sort of decide oh let's focus on this incredibly depressing and hard task and throw our resources at that (laughs) versus this other depressing incredibly hard task that like when like we don't seem to be able to make any progress on much of any of these things yeah so if you are very fatalistic about our inability to solve collective action problems there might be more technocratic solutions Mm -hmm. so i've mentioned this um concern with biological weapons where like um right now it's surprisingly easy to access uh basically biological weapons mm-hmm. and um the biological weapons convention has the budget of a typical mcdonald's there's just like not a lot of money going into preventing uh global catastrophic biological risks mm-hmm. and um the worst kinds of like biological weapons we can imagine are like many times worse than covid or than black death they're like you know smallpox meets ebola like everyone's bleeding out of their eyes like it's terrible Mm -hmm. um and um but but there are like technical solutions that can help us solve these kinds of problems so one of the big one of the big problems with um bioweapons is uh, is it's just too easy to um get a hold of them but there are uh like new screening techniques that we can develop to make it much more difficult to for, for people who are ordering like DNA sequences and the like mm-hmm. to um to, to get a hold of them make it easier to flag these things mm-hmm. um with artificial general intelligence which is a concern that people have had in the effective altruism community and it, like has moved in the last eight years from like a fringe concern to a pretty mainstream concern. Right. Yeah. I want to talk to you about that in particular. Why? Well, like, um, okay. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we just be dumping all of our money into creating a super intelligent AI that can fix all the other problems for us by like seeing the solutions that we're too dumb to see. I mean, if we could do it, I'd be kind of keen. Okay. Uh, the problem is, yeah. Uh, the problem there's is there's literally zero downside though. Like there's there's no potential <laughs> concern, right? There's no cause for concern. <laughs> so, the, the big cause for concern about creating robot overlords who will fix everything mm-hmm. is um is is alignment of artificial general intelligence with our with our values. I mean, we're already seeing this problem of AI alignment all over the place, sure. like racist algorithms right. and stuff Absolutely. like this. Like yeah. it's just really hard to align algorithms with our values because we use this machine learning technique that um like kind of um because we're not we're no longer explicitly coding ai we're kind of developing it through a process of evolutionary learning it just like makes a lot of weird mistakes that we wouldn't be able to we wouldn't expect and we just wouldn't be able to look at the code and find this out because it's not a straightforward Mm -hmm. code anymore Mm -hmm. so there's this concern that if you build very powerful artificial intelligence through this kind of like very common means of uh, developing it right now, it could just do all kinds of things that we don't expect because we can't audit it and we haven't programmed it directly. So it could, you know, Mm -hmm. autonomous weapon, autonomous, if autonomous weapons make big errors, that seems really bad. That seems like a good way to start Uh nuclear war. Uh Um, And if we have a super intelligence, um, 
you know, as beautiful as it would be fixing all of our problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, it's got this one little quirk, which is like, you know, it likes torture or something like this. And we just didn't see this in the code. Like, <laughs> right. maybe not the best way to proceed as a society. I, I'm curious, though, how like how high do you rate the risk compared to someone like Bostrom's, you know, when he writes the super intelligence, uh, his super intelligence book, right? Do you rate pretty highly the concern of a runaway takeoff or, or is it more like, you know, your concerns are with this kind of weaker AI reproducing a bunch of harms with the veneer of objectivity that they provide? Yeah, so I'm definitely not an expert on Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, much less artificial general intelligence. And so I do, to some extent, just defer to people like Nick Bostrom and Toby Ord, who've been thinking about these issues. And I do like think that even though the most likely situation isn't something like runaway, hard takeoff, um, super intelligence where... Mm -hmm. um, where you have where you've developed human level AI and then human level AI like looks at our, you know, looks at our AI development techniques. And it's like, I know how I can make myself a little bit better. I'm going to tweak this here. And oh, mm-hmm. now I'm even smarter and can tweak this other little bit of my intelligence. And we suddenly get 12,000 IQ AI over the course of like a year or less. Although I don't think this is like a very likely scenario. And I think we have like like the effective altruism community, the AI safety community have been updating away from this model um, maybe mm-hmm. towards a model that looks a little bit more like AI's like another industrial evolution or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think we should be concerned about this because um, if it did happen, it just would be the last invention we ever made. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it does pose a greater threat conditional on it occurring than things like even uh, kludgy autonomous weapons run by AI um, or like Facebook running presidential elections with their algorithms and things like this. Right. So while we're in the sci-fi world here for a second, another one, since yeah, Bostrom, Bostrom is in the effective altruism community as well, like um, what do you think about, so we've been talking about long-term and like there's just going to be so many more people in the future. And I think when we talk about that, people have in mind like, pre, you know, generally like so many more biological humans on the planet or like people out in the universe on other planets or something. But like one of the views that Bostrom has in mind is like, we're going to invent simulations of sentient beings and like their utility is going to be added to our overall utility calculations. And then you're getting like orders of magnitude, more people. What do you think about that part of the kind of long-term ism stuff? Do you feel like, that's a little that's getting a little far-fetched a little silly or do you think there is something to this idea about we should be working towards the eventual goal of technology that simulates consciousness so that we can you know upload everyone or uh reproduce everyone as digital entities that can have vastly more utility yeah so a few different things to say about this one is like there's an aspect of this that's just mere technological prediction it's just a prediction about Mm -hmm. where technology is going to go in the future and if you if you think as i do that there's like a pretty good chance that um human civilization sticks around for like millions of years um and if it's the case that you know economic growth can't keep continuing at the rate that it is growing but like Mm -hmm. that things do keep growing it just does look like we're going to develop basically well like basically any technologies in the space of like exploratory engineering like ideas that we know are physically possible um and like kind of have a sense of how to build but don't really know how to build Mm -hmm. and i do kind of see like um emulations m's as being 
in this kind of space. You mean and like so AIs technological... that mimic human behavior effectively? I or, mean like... Or like emulation. Well, not, not behavior. Uh-huh. Uh, Consciousness? Right. So, emu- yeah, emulations of mind, okay. right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it does seem... I, we can't be too sure about this, of course, but it does seem... In a lot of it hinges on some philosophy of mind questions, like whether you're a functionalist or have some spookier view. <laughs> Indeed I do, yes. <laughs> Correctly <laughs> sussed out. Um, but yes, I do agree that like... Well, I also think, for example, that... You know, I'm I'm fairly bullish on us developing AI that increasingly mimics human behavior in complex scenarios, but more bearish right. that we're not making any attempts to even try to develop something that looks like actual consciousness. And like your response might be, I just described the same picture twice and just gave you different names to it. But like <laughs> I, that's then then of course right, we're getting off into philosophy of mind. So you you yeah. didn't describe the same picture twice because blockhead, you've got lookup tables who can do all the same things that sure we do, but right. aren't conscious right exactly okay so i was just curious about that a little bit um let's what yeah i mm-hmm. i could say a couple more things sure. Go ahead. um so one is um yeah like the kind of economic pressures that you're talking about are like uh, that i think you're referring to are mm-hmm. like we do have economic pressures to develop artificial intelligence that can do human things because human labor is expensive and could be mm-hmm. you know this could be much cheaper and much better than humans um, and so there's a question like, will we need to develop something like human minds um, if we want to replace human labor efficiently? And so then that's an important question, I think, for predicting this kind of technology. Mm-hmm. And I guess I think the answer is like weakly, yes, but unclear. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other like ethical question like, um, do you think that we should be trying to fill the universe with like Sims? Mm-hmm. And I kind of think as a classically utilitarian my like spicy take is yes, that is what we should be going for mm-hmm. because um, you can just have a lot more people if they're simulations rather than biological life. And it's great to have people. I'm so glad I'm alive. I like, am so glad that like, there's, no, know, there's no higher and lower consciousness for you. A bot's as good as a, a human being, right? Well, it depends on the bot, but uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. So I think we, you know, I think that would be a great future. They would be just like us, have all the same kinds of experiences that we have, you know, contribute to cultural achievements and economic growth in the same way that we do. Mm -hmm. But we could have so many more people and have like, and it would be like, go to so much further regions of space and find such interesting things and develop whole virtual worlds that are just fantastic beyond our current imagination. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a great future to want and would love to see us get there. Okay, great. So let's talk about some objections before we run out of time to long-termism. There's, mm-hmm. there's various ways we can come at this. And some of them are sort of versions of things that we've already talked about a little bit. But one thing that you've sort of mentioned repeatedly here throughout um, that I think you, you all just have to bite the bullet here on to some extent is the basic problem of predicting the future like when you talk to technologists they're like don't ask me to predict anything farther than 20 years out and like please don't even ask me to like predict anything farther than like 10 years out most of the time right like five years maybe right so like this idea that you're talking about time scales of thousands or millions of years does it get sort of silly on an epistemic level to even think that like, are you throwing a dartboard at a dart, you know, like uh, throwing an arrow at a dartboard, like so <laughs> far away in the total dark that like, what is the point of this really? Yeah. So three immediate things that come to mind on that. The first is mm-hmm. that we can get better at prediction. Mm-hmm. There's been some great research from, uh, 
Phil Tetlock and a community of so-called super forecasters on what makes us better and worse predictors. And like increasingly, there are competitions between super forecasters who try different techniques to see which ones are most effective mm-hmm. uh, at predicting the future. And so far, we haven't made a lot of progress specifically on figuring out how to predict the long-term future. I mean, it's just hard to know how good you are at this until it happens. Mm-hmm. But we are learning how to get better at predicting the future and could get much better. The second thing is there are a lot of uh, things that are just very easy to predict. So Mm -hmm. like big, you know, um, like geopolitical trends, like pretty tough to predict socially, like social trends, pretty tough to predict, but like population, like population growth and things like that, like some like very large macro scale trends and economic growth are just very reliable and very easy to predict over long time scales. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that we rely on these, we can, I think, make very good predictions, even about the distant future. And then the last thing is, um, I think this is just why we need to lean into interventions that we can be more confident do have positive predictable effects in the long-term future. Mm-hmm. So this is a reason why a lot of people have focused on extinction risks, because extinction is like a really easy thing to predict. Mm-hmm. If the human species goes extinct, like we're not coming back. <laughs> And probably nothing is going to fill our ecological niche, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if we think that the, the future of, you know, earth originating civilization is this is, is like a great thing, um, which I'm inclined to think, but like do have some uncertainty about, then preventing extinction seems like quite a reliable way to influence the value of the very long term future. Mm-hmm. And so I think we should be looking for things like this where we can reliably like influence the future positively forever. And this is just the, the difficult but important task if you want to shape the long-term trajectory of the world. So like moonshots, but like kind of conservative moonshots relative to like other kind of moonshots, maybe. Maybe you're less interested in seeing if we can really invent digital utopias, but more interested in, in making sure that we keep going long enough to have a chance to do something at least. I don't know. So, I mean, that's the trend in the effective altruism community. But like I've always had a little bit of a heretical streak in me. And so, like, I am, like, interested in thinking about whether there are moonshots within moonshots within moonshots that we just should be taking mm-hmm. because the future could be so good that even very tiny chances of having this kind of effect uh, would be worth the investment of resources. And that, like, there are difficult philosophical questions about whether we should even be t- thinking about these tiny, tiny probabilities in our ordinary decision making. But on my view these might be the most important, like significant ways to affect the trajectory of the world. Yeah, good. So the tiny numbers thing is actually, I, the, I think there's something to, I think, a concern that in some of the cases here, this feels a bit like fucking around with very small and very large numbers, right? So like, how uh-huh. do you deal with the kind of core objection, I think, to long-termism, which is, you know, the math is going to make it the case where we have a huge obligation to future hypothetical persons because there's so many more of them that like we are going to end up with a strong obligation to significantly reduce or ignore quality of life issues in the present for the sake of you know like other than like yeah. like setting aside like let's just pretend you know pretend there is like an actual trade-off here where we have to do some kind of resource allocation and cost benefit analysis how do you not worry that this does inevitably suck us into that kind of hyper forward-looking perspective 
Um, so I do worry about parts of this. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I wanted to do is thank you because I think you finally like laid out the case for long-termism. And I don't think I did that in this, this episode yet. So mm-hmm. um, the case <laughs> is, is just this. Yeah. It's like the future could be huge, like in terms of time and space and it could be so good and it could also be really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And so if we can do anything to affect the trajectory of this enormous potential future uh, by making sure it exists, by making sure it's amazing and the like, then this is just going to dwarf the impact of the kinds of interventions we could take to improve the present day. Mm-hmm. And I am convinced by this case for long-termism, although I don't think it's like, it shouldn't be immediately obvious that it succeeds for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons is is the first thing that you mentioned in this question. It's this kind of concern with what philosophers call fanaticism. It's which is taking bets on very tiny probabilities with enormous payoffs. So mm-hmm. this is made most famous by Pascal's wager. You know, right. there's any chance that God exists, this has infinite utility. So you should like okay, bet on God existing. Right. So this is not Pascal's altruism. You want to tell me? Um. So. That's a question. Okay. And there's a great paper on it by Christian Tarsney at the Global Priorities Institute, which thinks is an institute at Oxford that thinks a lot about these issues. Mm-hmm. That like really tries to take seriously whether we should think that things like preventing the extinction of um, humanity um, is in the end of Earth originating civilization is this kind of Pascalian form of altruism. Because mm-hmm. um, I think it's like it's just not totally obvious. And I also just think it's not totally obvious how we should respond to these kinds of Pascalian situations. Like, it's not totally... I think Pascal's wager fails because of, like, the problem of many gods and things like this. Okay. But if it really is the case that you've got a one in a billion chance for infinite utility, I don't know. I'm, I'll am i take it. How much do you want me to pay you for that? Okay, so it's a different kind um, of bet in that sense, you feel like. Yeah. And we, we could argue at least that, like, Pascal's wager involves references to a eternal life that we have no reason to believe exists whereas you're dealing with right. actual living sentient beings and the future like that like we we do have a reason to think that there will be future sentient beings if we don't screw all of this up so it's not like we're dealing with fictional futures i think in that kind of way and like a totally hypothetical religious kind of way mm-hmm. right i mean that's that's a good way of characterizing the concern but it, i i agree with you that it doesn't look like we're dealing with probabilities of this like magnitude and scenarios that are this unclear and vague. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this is a question that deserves a lot of resources. And in fact, um, as um, in my work with Longview, I funded people to think about fanaticism in the context of long-termism and how big, how much we should be worried about it. Mm-hmm. Now, the other concern you raised about whether this justifies um, basically diverting a lot of resources from the present to the future and so, like, avoiding focusing on hard problems now so that we can make sure the future is is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I think, is, like, a, a slightly different question, but, um, but an important one. Mm-hmm. And I guess I want to say that, like, in the first instance, this, this is a feature and it's not a bug. Like, mm-hmm. morality sometimes does demand that we redistribute benefits from the powerful to the disenfranchised. And in this situation... We are the powerful and future generations are wholly disenfranchised in the world today. Okay. And what we do will have an enormous Mm -hmm. effect on their trajectory. So I think we just should accept that um, we we might want to redistribute resources from the present to the future to make sure it's as good as possible. Mm -hmm. But that said, there are plenty of great things about um, 
promoting the value of the long-term future, even for the present day. Like, bonus, if you can prevent a, you know, catastrophic pandemic from bioterrorism, you prevent everyone in the world from being killed. That seems great. Right, right. Um, it's an, so it's a good knock-on like... effect. I'll give you that. <laughs> right. Uh, so I don't think the trade-off's like as stark as it might initially seem, but I do think we should accept that there are just going to be some genuine trade-offs and we have to live with that because we're doing prioritization to do as much good as we can. Okay. So you're willing to bite that bullet and then sort of try to make sure that it doesn't get out of hand kind of in that way. That's right. I just think it was a big research project on what getting out of hand would sure. would be. Sure. And that's something we should be doing, and I'm excited that people are doing this project. Okay. Let me um, bring in a few other potential like concerns that folks might have that I think are a little less uh, intuitive, but I know our particular audience thinks in these kinds of ways. So one other pushback that some people might have is, you know, why should we take you serious? I know this is just your personal preference, but like, why should we buy into the personal preference that it would be better for earth originating species to spread out into the universe that like earth originating species, human beings in particular are rather terrible. The argument would run (laughs) and having more of them spreading out into the universe to, you know, commit climate change on a bunch of different planets and, and murder, you know, (laughs) a bunch of species on a bunch of other planets doesn't necessarily seem like you're promoting a bunch of utility in the world right it seems like you're just doing colonialism in space so like how do we how do we address that kind of uh concern yeah so i think it's only colonialism in space if there are other life forms out there who we're murdering because Mm -hmm. you know just settling planets is very different from colonization like that's what Columbus okay. thought he was doing, but he, it's not. <laughs> you just opened doing. up a whole part two that I want to like. We just did a book called uh, "Over on Philosophers <laughs> in Space." Um, we are Legion. We are Bob, and it's about um, von Neumann probes going out into the universe and colonizing planets. And there's a whole debate <laughs> about like, well, look, this planet only has like fungus on it. Okay, right. Do you have a right to colonize the fungus planet, or? Is it your obligation to let that planet uplift itself into its own ecosystems or something like that, right? Does it really have to be a barren rock that has 0% chance of developing life for for it to, you know, because you're talking about future individuals and that planet has future individuals on it that would, that are wiped out of existence if you just take over that planet, right? Look, I mean, I don't think (laughs) fungi and planets have agency that we need to respect, but like. But their future, the future fungus (laughs) offspring might, you know. So look. I do think that like this is a like a serious consideration. Okay. If we do think that, you know, you know, Fermi paradox aside, mm-hmm. uh, whatever views we adopt there, if we do think that there are other kinds of life forms in the universe that you know, might do the kinds of things that we are inclined to do, like settle the universe, then like we have to think about what our relationship with these individuals would be like, whether it's going to be one of cooperation or war, and we need to think about whether we expect their civilizations to be better than ours, because as you said, humans are kind of shitty. And um, so like, I do think this is an important question and one that's like really hard to answer because we don't know very much about distant deep space. (laughs) Right. Right. That's a lot of the problem with these questions is that like, they seem very important. It seems like we should work on them and they seem very, very hard to answer because of all of these sort of unknown unknowns and things like that. Yeah. But I don't want to throw up my hands. I do think Mm -hmm. that the future of, like human civilization is good despite the fact that i think like the world's terrible today and has been terrible for the entire time that homo sapiens has been on this planet mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. like a lot of like error, big error bars but i kind of think that like a year of factory farming is like 
um, is bad as like 20 years of human civilization is good. Like it's just like so massively bad that like this is like the primary determinant of the value of the planet today. Mm-hmm. And so we should take seriously the possibility that like we do this kind of stuff to, to the rest of the universe. Mm-hmm. But I also think that like we should accept that on a variety of dimensions, morally, economically and the like, the world is getting better and our ability to deal with negative externalities is getting better as our technology improves. Mm-hmm. And I do think that, you know, people do tend to be, although we make a lot of accidents and we basically just follow what other people are doing all the time and are like, just do what is, is socially normative and don't really think about things all the time. Despite that, we're like more altruistic than we are sadistic. Like mm-hmm. we we're generally like a pretty altruistic species. And I think that as long as we expect our descendants to be like roughly like somewhat aligned with us in that respect and not just like total sadists, I think that we should expect that our descendants who are spreading out over the universe and have this kind of advanced technology are going to like want to make it a good place rather than wanting to make it a bad place. And mm-hmm. so I think we should expect that the future is going to be pretty good. I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that even from like an evolutionary, like we're pro-social in this kind of way. And I think, um, yeah. you know, if, if you imagine humans in a low scarcity environment, I think they do tend to be fairly good in the kind of basic right. normative sense. Um, so, I mean, there's so much more here that I will, I'd love to get into about things like transhumanism, which you mentioned, <laughs> and like the debates mm-hmm. over that versus post-humanism versus futurism. But we're, we're way over time, I realize. And I want to get you to the enlightening round. Before we do that, do you have any like good resources for folks who, you know, want to learn a little bit more about long-termism and effective altruism um, that, you know, maybe don't mm-hmm. come from like a strong academic background? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So one resource is the website 80,000 hours. They advise people on careers to do the most good and are particularly focused on careers to promote the value of the long-term future. And they have a great podcast as well too. They do. They have an excellent podcast Mm -hmm. um, worth listening to as well. And um, the second thing I would recommend is um a book that's currently being written by will mccaskill on long-termism that's it's gonna be really good um i helped write like a small section section of it so i have like a like very you know big investment in it so an academic publishing Um, time that means it'll be out in two to three years is that right but you know taking the long view it's like we'll get you back on for that blink of an eye (laughs) and we can talk about the transhumanism when we get when your book comes out yeah that sounds great and then on um existential risks in particular toby ord's got a great book called the precipice Mm -hmm. where he looks into um the the likelihood and the kind of scenarios that could lead to existential catastrophes so i think that's like one of the best up-to-date resources on at least that part of this topic but the other issues are like just kind of like new and underdeveloped and exciting and so we just kind of have to see how they play out and like you know Mm-hmm. Be great if people just jump in and get involved in this project. Yeah, and we did a whole like um, bonus content walkthrough way back when of Bostrom's uh, Super Intelligence's Paths book, um, which I think oh, nice. is another good example of this kind of work that's essentially trying to like really drill down on a particular um, a particular problem in this area, even when we recognize there are a lot of unknowns. So, all right, great. Um, those are, I think, useful resources that folks will enjoy. So now, unfortunately, I have to torture you some. Um, so this Uh-oh. this is the enlightening <laughs> round. I'm going to give you a yep. I'm going to give you a series of things. You're going to tell me are these things real or not real? 
You cannot hedge. You don't get to explain what real means. <laughs> Your only answers are real or not real. Do you do you understand? It can't be indeterminate. Nope. Nope. There's no middle ground here. <laughs> so to get us going here, prime the pump. Classical logic. Yep. Um, is anything real? Yes. Oh, great. All right. Let's find real. out what is real. So the external world, real or not real? The faces have started already. <laughs> Does it count as a hedge if I just pause? Sorry, um, real. <laughs> real, okay. Colors, <laughs> real or not real? Not real. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness, real or not real? Not real. Free will, real or not real? Not real. Selves or persons? Not real. Genders? Definitely not real. Races? <laughs> not real. Species? <laughs> Not real. Morality? Not at all real. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not real. Okay. Knowledge? Not real. Okay. God or gods? Not real. Society? Real. Money? Real. Numbers? Mm, not real. <laughs> <laughs> Fictional characters? Real. <laughs> okay. Holes like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Okay. Sandwiches. Very real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Not real. Beauty. Not real. <laughs> <laughs> uh, love. Ouch. Uh, not real. Okay. Causality. Not real. And finally, time. Not real. Okay. How do you feel? I feel like every time I listen to people to this, I'm like, there's a, there's a rapid context shift in every single question, and it's bracing to keep up with what sense of real and not real were me. <laughs> it's deeply unhinging. It's really, you feel pretty unbored by the end of it. I agree. <laughs> I like that you fall into one of my but favorite categories of people, which is people who think that fictional characters are real, but God, a fictional character is in fact not real. <laughs> Context, man. No, it's great. It's my favorite. It makes me happy every single time. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tyler. This has been a lot of fun. I think we really got we covered a lot of good ground on this. And when your book yeah. does eventually, or the one that you helped on does eventually come out, um, maybe we can get you all back on to talk about that some and uh, why we should all turn into post-human uh, digital cloud people. Um, do you want folks know? Oh, yes. Yeah. Do you want folks know where you can, where they can find you on the Twitters and the whatnots? Oh dear, do I? It's a great question. Um, my Twitter is, unlike most philosophers, it's my name. It's Tyler underscore M underscore John. Bold choice. Um, yeah, it is indeed. So you can find my spicy utilitarian takes over there. Okay. And thank you very much, Aaron. I really enjoyed this and thought it was fruitful. So I really appreciate you having me. No, my pleasure. This was a lot of fun. And I think folks will hopefully enjoy it. So thanks very much. As a human, I was ill-equipped. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our newest patrons, Heather Sullivan and Stephanie. And as always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, 
campquest.org, 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 Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and Cormot Orkman on Twitch. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, no matter how long your timeline is, you are the void and the void is you.